Section six of God and My Neighbour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. God and My Neighbour by Robert Blatchford. Section six. The Old Testament. Is the Bible the Word of God? The question of the divine inspiration of the scriptures is one of great importance. If the Bible is a divine revelation, if it contains the actual word of God, and nothing but the word of God, then it is folly to doubt any statement it contains. If the Bible is merely the work of men, if it contains only the words of men, then, like all other human work, the Bible is fallible and must submit to criticism and examination, as all fallible human work must. The Christian religion stands or falls by the truth of the Bible. If the Bible is the word of God, the Bible must be true, and the Christian religion must be true. But, as I said before, the claim for the divine origin of the Bible has not been made by God, but by men. We have therefore no means of testing the Bible's title to divine revelation, other than by criticism and examination of the Bible itself. If the Bible is the Word of God, the all-wise and perfect God, the Bible will be perfect. If the Bible is not perfect, it cannot be the Word of a God who is perfect. The Bible is not perfect. Historically, scientifically, and ethically, the Bible is imperfect. If the Bible is the Word of God, it will present to us the perfect God as He is, and every act of His it records will be perfection. But the Bible does not show us a perfect God, but a very imperfect God, and such of His acts as the Bible records are imperfect. I say, then, with strong conviction, that I do not believe the Bible to be the Word of God, that I do not believe it to be inspired of God that I do not believe it to contain any divine revelation of God to man. Why? Let us consider the claim that the Bible is the Word of God. Let us, first of all, consider it from the common-sense point of view, as ordinary men of the world trying to get at the truth and the reason of a thing. What would one naturally expect in a revelation by God to man? 1. We should expect God to reveal truths of which mankind were ignorant. 2. We should expect God to make no errors of fact in His revelation. 3. We should expect God to make His revelation so clear and so definite that it could be neither misunderstood nor misrepresented. 4. We should expect God to ensure that His revelation should reach all men and should reach all men directly and quickly. 5. We should expect God's revelation of the relations existing between himself and man to be true. 6. We should expect the ethical code in God's revelation to be complete and final and perfect. The divine ethics should at least be above human criticism and beyond human amendment. To what extent does the Bible revelation fulfil the above natural expectations? 1. Does the Bible reveal any new moral truths? I cannot speak very positively, but I think there is very little moral truth in the Bible which has not been, 
or will not be traced back to more ancient times and religions. 2. Does the Bible revelation contain no errors of fact? I claim that it contains many errors of fact, and the higher criticism supports the claim, as we shall see. 3. Is the Bible revelation so clear and explicit that no difference of opinion as to its meaning is possible? No, it is not. No one living can claim anything of the kind. 4. Has God's revelation, as given in the Bible, reached all men? No. After thousands of years, it is not yet known to one half the human race. 5. Is God's revelation of the relations between man and God true? I claim that it is not true, for the word of God makes it appear that man was created by God in his own image, and that man sinned against God, whereas man, being only what God made him, and having only the powers God gave him, could not sin against God any more than a steam engine can sin against the engineer who designed and built it. 6. Is the ethical code of the Bible complete and final and perfect? No. The ethical code of the Bible gradually develops and improves. Had it been divine, it would have been perfect from the first. It is because it is human that it develops. As the prophets and the poets of the Jews grew wiser and gentler and more enlightened, so the revelation of God grew wiser and gentler with them. Now, God would know from the beginning but men would have to learn. Therefore, the Bible writings would appear to be human and not divine. Let us look over these points again and make the matter still clearer and more simple. If the children of an earthly father had wandered away and forgotten him and were, for lack of guidance, living evil lives, and if the earthly father wished his children to know that they were his children, wished them to know what he had done for them, what they owed to him, what penalty they might fear, or reward they might ask from him, if he wished them to live cleanly and justly, and to love him, and at last come home to him, what would that earthly father do? He would send his message to all his children, instead of sending it to one, and trusting him to repeat it correctly to the others. He would try to so word his message that all his children might understand it. He would send his children the very best rules of life he knew. He would take great pains to avoid error in matters of fact. If, after the message was sent, his children quarrelled and fought about its meaning, their earthly father would not sit silent and allow them to hate and slay each other because of a misconception, but would send at once and make his meaning plain to all. And if an earthly father would act thus wisely and thus kindly, how much more your Father, which is in heaven. But the Bible revelation was not given to all the people of the earth. It was given to a handful of Jews. It was not so explicit as to make disagreement impossible. It is thousands of years since the revelation of God began, and yet, today, it is not known to hundreds of millions of human beings, and amongst those whom it has reached, there is endless bitter disagreement as to its meaning. Now, what is the use of a revelation which does not reveal more than is known, which does not reveal truth only, which does not reach half those who need it, which cannot be understood by those it does reach? 
but you will regard me as a prejudiced witness. I shall, therefore, in my efforts to prove the Bible fallible, quote almost wholly from Christian critics. And I take the opportunity to here recommend very strongly Shall We Understand the Bible by the Rev. T. Rhonda Williams, Adam and Charles Black, One Shilling Net. There are two chief theories as to the inspiration of the Bible. One is the old theory, that the Bible is the actual Word of God, and nothing but the Word of God, directly revealed by God to Moses and the prophets. The other is the new theory, that the Bible is a work of many men, whom God had inspired to speak or write the truth. The old theory is well described by Dr. Washington Gladden in the following passage. Quote, they imagine that the Bible must have originated in a manner purely miraculous, and, though they know very little about its origin, they conceive of it as a book that was written in heaven in the English tongue, divided there into chapters and verses, with headlines and reference marks, printed in small pica, bound in calf, and sent down by angels in its present form. End quote. The newer idea of the inspiration of the Bible is also well expressed by Dr. Gladden, thus, quote, Revelation, we shall be able to understand, is not the dictation by God of words to men, that they may be written down in books. It is rather the disclosure of the truth and love of God to men in the processes of history, in the development of the moral order of the world. It is the light that lighteth every man, shining in the paths that lead to righteousness and life. There is a moral leadership of God in history. Revelation is a record of that leadership. It is by no means confined to words. Its most impressive disclosures are in the field of action. Thus did the Lord, as Dr. Bruce has said, is a more perfect formula of revelation than thus saith the Lord. It is in that great historical movement of which the Bible is the record that we find the revelation of God to men. The old theory of Bible inspiration was, as I have said, the theory that the Bible was the actual and pure Word of God, and was true in every circumstance and detail. Now, if an almighty and all-wise God had spoken or written every word of the Bible, then that book would, of course, be wholly and unshakably true in its every statement. But if the Bible was written by men, some of them more or less inspired, then it would not, in all probability, be wholly perfect. The more inspiration its writers had from God, the more perfect it would be. The less inspiration its writers had from God, the less perfect it would be. Wholly perfect, it might be attributed to a perfect being. Partly perfect, it might be the work of less perfect beings. Less perfect, it would have to be put down to less perfect beings. Containing any fault or error, it could not be the actual word of God, and the more errors and faults it contained, the less inspiration of God would be granted to its authors. I will quote again from Dr. Gladden. Quote, what I desire to show is that the work of putting the Bible into its present form was not done in heaven, but on earth, that it was not done by angels, but by men, that it was not done all at once, but a little at a time, the work of preparing and perfecting it extending over several centuries, 
and employing the labours of many men in different lands and long divided generations. End quote. I now turn to Dr. Akhed. On page 25 of his book, Changing Creeds, he says, quote, Ignorance has claimed the Bible for its own. Bigotry has made the Bible its battleground. Its phrases have become the shibboleth of pietistic sectarians. Its authority has been evoked in support of the foulest crimes committed by the vilest men. And its very existence has been made a pretext for theories which shut out God from his own world. In our day, Bible worship has become, with very many good but very unthoughtful people, a disease. End quote. So much for the attitude of the various schools of religious thought towards the Bible. Now, in the opinion of these Christian teachers, is the Bible perfect or imperfect? Dr. Akhed gives his opinion with characteristic candour and energy. Quote, For observe the position. Men are told that the Bible is the infallible revelation of God to man, and that its statements concerning God and man are to be unhesitatingly accepted as statements made upon the authority of God. They turn to its pages, and they find historical errors, arithmetical mistakes, scientific blunders, or, rather, blunders most unscientific, inconsistencies and manifold contradictions, and, what is far worse, they find that the most horrible crimes are committed by men who calmly plead, in justification of their terrible misdeeds, the imperturbable, God said. The heart and conscience of man indignantly rebel against the representations of the Most High, given in some parts of the Bible. What happens? Why, such men declare, are now declaring, and will, in constantly increasing numbers, and with constantly increasing force and boldness, declare, that they can have nothing to do with a book whose errors a child can discover, and whose revelation of God partakes, at times, of blasphemy against man. End quote. I need hardly say that I agree with every word of the above. If anyone asked me what evidence exists in support of the claims that the Bible is the word of God, or that it was, in any real sense of the words, divinely inspired, I should answer, without the least hesitation, that there does not exist a scrap of evidence of any kind in support of such a claim. Let us give a little consideration to the origin of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, were said to be written by Moses. Moses was not, and could not have been, the author of those books. There is, indeed, no reliable evidence to prove that Moses ever existed. Whether he was a fictitious hero, or a solar myth, or what he was, no man knows. Neither does there appear to be any certainty that the biblical books attributed to David, to Solomon, to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the rest, were really written by those kings, or prophets, or even in their age. And after these books, or many of them, had been written, they were entirely lost, and are said to have been reproduced by Ezra. Add to these facts that the original Hebrew had no vowels, that many of the sacred books were written without vowels, and that the vowels were added long after, and remember that, as Dr. Akhed says, the oldest Hebrew Bible in existence 
belongs to the 10th century after Christ, and it will begin to appear that the claim for biblical infallibility is utterly absurd. But I must not offer these statements on my own authority. Let us return to Dr. Gladden. On page 11 of Who Wrote the Bible, I find the following. Quote, the first of these holy books of the Jews was then the law, contained in the first five books of our Bible, known among us as the Pentateuch, and called by the Jews sometimes simply the law, and sometimes the law of Moses. This was supposed to be the oldest portion of their scriptures, and was by them regarded as much more sacred and authoritative than any other portion. To Moses, they said, God spoke face to face. To the other holy men, much less distinctly. Consequently, their appeal is most often to the law of Moses. End quote. The sacredness of the five books of the law, then, rests upon the belief that they were written by Moses, who had spoken face to face with God. So that if Moses did not write those books, their sacredness is a myth. Now, on page 42, Dr. Gladden says, quote, 1. The Pentateuch could never have been written by any one man, inspired or otherwise. 2. It is a composite work in which many hands have been engaged. The production of it extends over many centuries. 3. It contains writings which are as old as the time of Moses, and some that are much older. It is impossible to tell how much of it came from the hand of Moses, but there are considerable portions of it which, although they may have been somewhat modified by later editors, are substantially as he left them. End quote. On page 45, Dr. Gladden, again speaking of the Pentateuch, says, quote, But the story of Genesis goes back to a remote antiquity. The last event related in that book occurred 400 years before Moses was born. It was as distant from him as the discovery of America by Columbus is from us. And other portions of the narrative, such as the stories of the flood and the creation, stretch back into the shadows of the age which precedes history. Neither Moses, nor anyone living in his day, could have given us these reports from his own knowledge. Whoever wrote this must have obtained his materials in one of three ways. One, they might have been given to him by divine revelation from God. Two, he might have gathered them up from oral tradition, from stories, folklore, transmitted from mouth to mouth, and so preserved from generation to generation. Three, he might have found them in written documents existing at the time of his writing. End quote. As many of the laws and incidents in the books of Moses were known to the Chaldeans, the direct revelation of God theory is not plausible. On this point, Dr. Gladden's opinion supports mine. He says, on page 61, quote, That such is the fact with respect to the structure of these ancient writings is now beyond question, and our theory of inspiration must be adjusted to this fact. Evidently, neither the theory of verbal inspiration nor the theory of plenary inspiration can be made to fit the facts, which a careful study of the writings themselves brings before us. These writings are not inspired in the sense that we have commonly given that word. 
the verbal theory of inspiration was only tenable while they were supposed to be the work of a single author to such a composite literature no such theory will apply to make this claim says professor ladd and yet accept the best ascertained results of criticism would compel us to take such positions as the following the original authors of each one of the writings which enter into the composite structure were infallibly inspired anyone who made any changes in any one of these fundamental writings was infallibly inspired every compiler who put together two or more of these writings was infallibly inspired both as to his selections and omissions and as to any connecting or explanatory words which he might himself write every redactor was infallibly inspired to correct and supplement and omit that which was a product of previous infallible inspirations or perhaps it might seem more convenient to attach the claim of a plenary inspiration to the last redactor of all for then we should probably have selected of all others the one least able to bear the weight of such a claim think of making the claim for a plenary inspiration of the pentateuch in its present form on the ground of the infallibility of that one of the scribes who gave it its last touches sometime subsequent to the death of ezra End quote. remember that dr gladden declares on page five that he shall state no conclusions as to the history of the sacred writings which will not be accepted by conservative critics on page 54 dr gladden quotes the following from dr perown the first composition of the pentateuch as a whole could not have taken place till after the israelites entered canaan the whole work did not finally assume its present shape till its revision was undertaken by ezra after the return from the babylonish captivity End quote. on page 25 dr gladden himself speaks as follows quote, the common argument by which christ is made a witness to the authenticity and infallible authority of the old testament runs as follows christ quotes moses as the author of this legislation therefore moses must have written the whole pentateuch moses was an inspired prophet therefore all the teaching of the pentateuch must be infallible the facts are that jesus nowhere testifies that moses wrote the whole of the pentateuch and that he nowhere guarantees the infallibility either of moses or of the book on the contrary he set aside as inadequate or morally defective certain laws which in this book are ascribed to moses End quote. so much for the authorship and the inspiration of the first five books of the bible as to the authorship of other books of the bible dr gladden says of judges and samuel that we do not know the authors nor the dates of kings he says the name of the author is concealed from us the origin and correctness of the prophecies and psalms he tells us are problematical of the books of esther and daniel dr gladden says that they are founded on fact i do not doubt but it is perhaps safer to regard them both as historical fictions than as veritable histories of daniel dean farrer wrote quote, the immense majority of scholars of name and acknowledged competence in england and europe have now been led to form an irresistible conclusion that the book of daniel was not written and could not have been written in his present form by the prophet daniel 
B.C. 534, but that it can only have been written, as we now have it, in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, about B.C. 164, and that the object of the pious and patriotic author was to inspirit his desponding countrymen by splendid specimens of that lofty moral fiction which was always common amongst the Jews after the exile, and was known as the Haggadah. So clearly is this proven to most critics, that they willingly suffer the attempted refutations of their views to sink to the ground under the weight of their own inadequacy. The Bible and the Child End quote. I return now to Dr. Akhed, from whose book I quote the following. Quote, Dr. Clifford has declared that there is not a man who has given a day's attention to the question who holds the complete freedom of the Bible from inaccuracy. He has added that it has become more and more impossible to affirm the inerrancy of the Bible. Dr. Lyman Abbott says that an infallible book is an impossible conception, and today no one really believes that our present Bible is such a book. End quote. Compare those opinions with the following extract from the first article in The Bible and the Child. The change of view respecting the Bible, which has marked the advancing knowledge and more earnest studies of this generation, is only the culmination of the discovery that there were different documents in the book of Genesis, a discovery first published by the physician Jean Astruc in 1753. There are three widely divergent ways of dealing with these results of profound study, each of which is almost equally dangerous to the faith of the rising generation. 1. Parents and teachers may go on inculcating dogmas about the Bible and methods of dealing with it, which have long become impossible to those who have really tried to follow the manifold discoveries of modern history with perfectly open and unbiased minds. There are a certain number of persons who, when their minds have become stereotyped in foregone conclusions, are simply incapable of grasping new truths. They become obstructives, and not infrequently bigoted obstructives. As convinced as the Pope of their own personal infallibility, their attitude towards those who see that the old views are no longer tenable is an attitude of anger and alarm. This is the usual temper of the odium theologicum. It would, if it could, grasp the thumbscrew and the rack of medieval inquisitors, and would, in the last resource, hand over all opponents to the scaffold or the stake. Those whose intellects have thus been petrified by custom and advancing years are, of all others, the most hopeless to deal with. They have made themselves incapable of fair and rational examination of the truths which they impugn. They think that they can, by mere assertion, overthrow results arrived at by the lifelong inquiries of the ablest students, while they have not given a day's serious or impartial study to them. They fancy that even the ignorant, if only they be what is called orthodox, are justified in strong denunciation of men quite as truthful and often incomparably more able than themselves. Offhand dogmatists of this stamp, who usually abound among professional religionists, think that they can refute any number of scholars, however profound and however pious, if only they shout, Infidel, with sufficient loudness. End quote. Those are not the words of an infidel. They are the words of the late Dean Farrer. To quote again from Dr. Gladden, quote, 
Evidently, neither the theory of verbal inspiration nor the theory of plenary inspiration can be made to fit the facts which a careful study of the writings themselves brings before us. These writings are not inspired in the sense we have commonly given to that word. The verbal theory of inspiration was only tenable while they were supposed to be the work of a single author. To such a composite literature, no such theory will apply. End quote. The Bible is not inspired. The fact is that no sacred book is inspired. All sacred books are the work of human minds. All ideas of God are human ideas. All religions are made by man. When the old-fashioned Christian said the Bible was an inspired book, he meant that God put the words and the facts directly into the mind of the prophet. That meant that God told Moses about the creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Ark, and the Ten Commandments. Many modern Christians, amongst whom I place the Reverend Ambrose Pope of Bakewell, believe that God gave Moses, and all the other prophets, a special genius and a special desire to convey religious information to other men. And Mr. Pope suggests that man was so ignorant, so childlike, or so weak in those days, that it was necessary to disguise plain facts in misleading symbols. But the man, Moses, or another, who wrote the book of Genesis, was a man of literary genius. He was no child, no weakling. If God had said to him, I made the world out of the fiery nebula, and I made the sea to bring forth the staple of life, and I caused all living things to develop from that seed or staple of life, and I drew man out from the brutes, and the time was six hundred millions of years. If God had said that to Moses, do you think Moses would not have understood? Now, let me show you what the Christian asks us to believe. He asks us to believe that the God, who was the first cause of creation, and knew everything, inspired man, in the childhood of the world, with a fabulous and inaccurate theory of the origin of man and the earth, and that since that day the same God has gradually changed or added to the inspiration, until he inspired Laplace, and Galileo, and Copernicus, and Darwin, to contradict the teachings of the previous fifty thousand years. He asks us to believe that God muddled men's minds with a mysterious series of revelations cloaked in fable and allegory, that he allowed them to stumble and to blunder and to quarrel over these revelations, that he allowed them to persecute and slay and torture each other on account of divergent readings of his revelations for ages and ages, and that he is still looking on while a number of bewildered and antagonistic religions fight each other to achieve the survival of the fittest. Is that a reasonable theory? Is it the kind of theory a reasonable man can accept? Is it consonant with common sense? Contrast that with our theory. We say that early man, having no knowledge of science, and more imagination than reason, would be alarmed and puzzled by the phenomena of nature. He would be afraid of the dark. He would be afraid of the thunder. He would wonder at the moon, at the stars, at fire, at the ocean. He would fear what he did not understand, and he would bow down and pay homage to what he feared. Then, by degrees, he would personify the stars and the sun and the thunder and the fire. He would make gods of these things. 
He would make gods of the dead. He would make gods of heroes. He would do what all savage races do, what all children do. He would make legends or fables or fairy tales out of his hopes, his fears and his guesses. Does not that sound reasonable? Does not history teach us that it is true? Do we not know that religion was so born and nursed? There is no such thing known to men as an original religion. All religions are made up of the fables and the imaginations of tribes long since extinct. Religion is an evolution, not a revelation. It has been invented, altered and built up, and pulled down, and reconstructed time after time. It is a conglomeration and an adaptation as language is. And the Christian religion is no more an original religion than English is an original tongue. We have Sanskrit, Latin, Greek, French, Saxon, Norman words in our language. And we have Aryan, Semitic, Egyptian, Roman, Greek, and all manner of ancient foreign fables, myths, and rites in our Christian religion. We say that Genesis was a poetic presentation of a fabulous story pieced together from many traditions of many tribes, and recording, with great literary power, the ideas of a people whose scientific knowledge was very incomplete. Now, I ask you, which of these theories is the most reasonable? Which is the most scientific? Which agrees most closely with the facts of philology and history of which we are in possession? Why twist the self-evident fact that the Bible story of creation was the work of unscientific men of strong imagination into a far-fetched and unsatisfactory puzzle of symbol and allegory. It would be just as easy, and just as reasonable, to take the mortatur and try to prove that it contained a veiled revelation of God's relations to man. And let me ask one or two questions as to this matter of the revelation of the Holy Bible. Is God all-powerful, or is he not? If he is all-powerful, why did he make man so imperfect? Could he not have created him at once a wise and good creature? Even when man was ignorant and savage, could not an all-powerful God have devised some means of revealing himself so as to be understood? If God really wished to reveal himself to man, why did he reveal himself only to one or two obscure tribes, and leave the rest of mankind in darkness? Those poor savages were full of credulity, full of terror, full of wonder, full of the desire to worship. They worshipped the sun and the moon. They worshipped ghosts and demons. They worshipped tyrants and pretenders and heroes, dead and alive. Do you believe that if God had come down on earth with a cohort of shining angels and had said, Behold, I am the only God, these savages would not have left all baser gods and worshipped him? Why, these men, and all the thousands of generations of their children, have been looking for God since first they learned to look at sea and sky. They are looking for him now. They have fought countless bloody wars, and have committed countless horrible atrocities in their zeal for him. And you ask us to believe that his grand revelation of himself is bound up in a volume of fables and errors collected thousands of years ago by superstitious priests and prophets of Palestine and Egypt and Assyria. We cannot believe such a statement. No man can believe it 
who test it by his reason in the same way in which he would test any modern problem. If the leaders of religion brought the same vigour and subtlety of mind to bear upon religion, which they bring to bear on any criticism of religion, if they weighed the Bible as they have weighed astronomy and evolution, the Christian religion would not last a year. If my reader has not studied this matter, let him read the books I have recommended, and then sit down and consider the Bible revelation and story with the same fearless honesty and clear common sense with which he would consider the Bibles of the Mohammedan or Buddhist or Hindu, and then ask himself the question, is the Bible a holy and inspired book and the word of God to man, or is it an incongruous and contradictory collection of tribal traditions and ancient fables, written by men of genius and imagination? End of section 6